I think my tendency as a Christian is to believe that when I became a Christian that I received the gospel and then um, now I can get on to other heavier things. But the truth is, the gospel itself is so deep and mysterious and it's rich that um, if I find myself now getting bored with the gospel, it's just because I don't understand it. If, if Jesus does not seem like the answer, then I still don't understand the problem. I think I do, but I don't because I'm using other words for it. But once I get to the depth of the human condition, there is no other answer except Jesus. So believing in the gospel for me is not something that happened in the past. It is something that is happening all of the time. The more of it I see and the more of it I understand, I come to appreciate it in whole new ways that I just couldn't before because I didn't see it. I hope that's true for you. And one of the purposes for this, um, this study on what the gospel is, is for that to be true, uh, not only for people that are um, irreligious, but for people that are religious. Sometimes there is nothing that insulates us from the gospel like religion, including Christianity. So what we need is something to break into that and um, show us another way. And what I've been trying to do is that. So I'm going to draw a little bit again today and hope that does not frustrate you. Uh, we got partway through last week. I was drawing in the first hour and I was scribbling on the board and um, Betsy Rennebarger came. She's sitting down here. Noah, her son, was there. And the second, she said, the second you pick up the marker, he starts writing notes and he's looking and see what you're writing. And then he got to the point where he couldn't understand what you were writing and he just went, I'm done. So he just quit on it. So I'm going to try to be a little more legible today if I can and recap some of this. So we said uh, last week that, uh, that the gospel really has four movements to it. This is kind of the structure or the chassis of the gospel. There's a struggle, that's the human condition, and then there's an announcement that comes from the outside. It is what Moltmann called the Adventist. It's not something inside the world, it's outside the world speaking into the struggle. And then there is an appropriate response to that to that announcement. There's a way of believing it, of, of participating in it that is new for us. And as we participate, change or transformation begins to occur. So it sort of works like this. And if you look at the gospel as, as this, as something that recurs again and again throughout the Bible, then you start to understand how Jesus could come preaching the gospel when he came, because the story had already happened only in smaller ways. It happened all the way back in Noah, in the flood. You can track Noah's story in this. You can track um, Moses 
in the Exodus, they're in captivity, and then he find, God finds a man and so forth. You can track uh, Israel's exile in the Old Testament with the kings. It's the same story. Being Elijah with his struggle on Mount... All, all, you can tell the story again and again and again because it moves on the same kind of structure. So when Jesus comes, what he does is he tells that story differently. And when he does, the lights come on. What Jesus tells us is that the struggle is not political. It's spiritual. Your problem is not the world. It isn't it isn't Babylon, and it's not Egypt, and it's not Rome. Your problem is inside of you. Therefore, the announcement is not some conquering hero who comes in from the outside and overthrows your problem. The announcement is someone who enters your struggle. And he identifies with you. And as you identify with him and you begin to live in your struggle the way that he lives, you start to see significant change, not only around you, but in you. So the struggle is not political, it's spiritual. The announcement is not a conquering hero, it's a man of sorrows. The response is not to resist your enemies. The response is to participate in the life of that person. And as you do that, things begin to change. Not around you, in you. You go back to the same struggle you were always in, only you're different now. Because when you change, everything around you changes. Eventually. Are you there? So, our opportunities for talking about the gospel rises from our ability to identify and articulate the struggle. If we can understand people's struggle, and that begins by listening, not talking. Once we understand the nature of their struggle, then we can start to identify what the solution might be. So for me, what I did was I started um, going through the Bible and uh, noticing dominant themes that run all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And each one of these themes has a different set of symptoms. The struggle looks different in each one of these themes. And each one of these themes has a different cure. And so each one of them Jesus does something or is something different in each one of these themes. 
And to believe in Jesus looks different depending on the theme. And so what we hope for in the end is different. So actually I've identified like 10 to 12 different themes. Relax, I'm not gonna do all 10. I will only do four and I only do one today. <sighs> Exhale. One of these themes is uh, the theme of folly and wisdom. There is a huge conflict in the Bible between foolishness and wisdom. Another way of saying it is between darkness and light. Another way of saying it is between blindness and seeing. If we can learn to read the Bible through that lens, we start to see things we couldn't see before. And as we do, we can identify with people's situations. Throughout the scripture, folly is defined or foolishness as a form of ignorance. It's like drunkenness. It's a blindness to what is happening around you. Something could be there and it could be real, but you're misjudging it. You're not discerning what's actually happening because you're blind. Or as Proverbs said, you keep stumbling into things and you don't know why you run into them. It's because you're walking in the dark and you can't see things that you're walking into. You're not trying to hit them. You're trying to get around, but because you can't see them, you run into them and every time you do, your life gets worse. Am I starting to describe a certain kind of people who are like, I can't understand because everything I'm doing feels right, but then when I do it, it just goes wrong. I can't see the connection between my action and the consequence. It's a form of blindness. When I was a kid, let me draw a line, then I'm gonna show you two different gospels today. One is a moral gospel. You know this one. And the other is the wisdom gospel. Maybe you've not heard this one. When I was a kid, this is the gospel that I knew. And the moral gospel goes like this. My problem is transgression from God's law and therefore guilt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore we die. The wages of sin is death. The problem then is that I am separate from God. God, because of my sin and my guilt, has pronounced a curse or a condemnation on me. He has pronounced me, well, there's one, there's one book in the gospel that says, uh, uh, it says, heaven is for real, but so is hell. I didn't read it. I just, that's just too much. Sounds like a hyper-conservative person, so I just no, but, but it's this logic, isn't it? 
The logic is that you've transgressed God's law, therefore you are separate from God and you are condemned by God. And so salvation is a sacrifice in Jesus Christ and Christ is like a mediator. You need somebody to get in between you and God because you're separate from him. You tracking? Salvation then is to be right with God or what theologians call justification. It's a big word. It'll cost you about $100,000 to learn that word in college. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to dismiss this because generally when I talk about this, people in the audience will say, oh yeah, I, I, I know what he's doing. He's setting up a house of cards so he can just destroy it. But the truth is, I'm not doing that because this is the gospel that saved me. I mean, as a kid, this was the only thing I knew, that God was holy and I was not. And so one time I had to reckon with that and had no way to do it. So one night after an evening service, (laughs) tells you how old I am, I went home and I went into my bedroom and I started to pray for God to do something to come in between me and him because we were so unalike. Halfway through my prayer, my father stepped into the room and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to find a way to be right with God. I just feel like he's so far away from me. And my dad came in and he said, you know what? It's kind of like this. God is here and you are here And there is this huge gap between you. This is what you're feeling, son. And God has sent the person, Jesus Christ, into your life to bridge that gap. He's the sacrifice and he is the mediator. So by believing in Jesus, you can go from where you are to where you want to be with God. You just have to believe. So I did. And at that stage, it changed my life a little. But because this is the only gospel that I had heard, I didn't even know how to ask for anything else. And I didn't know how to look for it. And so I never knew what I was missing until I started reading more and more of the scripture and discovering that not everything that happens in the Bible fits nicely in this model. What is needed is something else. So by understanding what the gospel truly is, I can learn different dialects for talking about the same thing. Let me say that differently. There is only one gospel, but the problem with the evangelical church has been they confuse one way of talking about the gospel with the gospel itself, so that if we don't use the language that people are used to hearing, it seems to them as if we're not even talking gospel. They keep waiting for their buzzwords 
to know whether or not we're really getting down to the gospel. It's almost like the church is speaking Coptic language that nobody speaks anymore, and we're trying to tell people, if you want to be saved, you got to learn Coptic. You have to learn how to do your mass in Latin. Dude, why don't you just change the language? Hence, another gospel or form of it. Let me tell it like this. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And he put them in a garden. And he told them, anything in this garden, you can eat. Anything. One rule. You can't eat that tree in the center of the garden. Because on the day that you eat that tree, you will surely die. Death, then, is not a curse. It's a consequence. God builds the garden, plants us in it, and says, here's how the garden works. You can eat anything you want, but if you eat from that tree, you will die. Not because I'm angry with you, but because the consequence is built into the act. When you commit the act, you get the consequence. Nobody's mad at you. You're just doing things that ruin your life. You hearing it? So they listened to him until they didn't. One day a serpent appeared and said to the woman, has God really said that you can't eat any of the trees? She said, no. What he said was, we could not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or touch it or we will die. And the serpent said, you will not die. God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know good from evil. She thinks to herself, oh, I want to be like God. Don't you? Maybe I should eat it. So she reaches out and takes it, eats it, gives it to her husband, eats it. Sure enough, their eyes are opened and they realize they're naked. Told like this, the problem in the Garden of Eden is not that they are rebels, it's that they are fools. told like this, they are not trying to jostle God out of his position. It never says that. It says you will be like God. 
That's a good desire. Told like this, what the serpent led them to believe would be the way became the obstacle. The problem was not that they were evil. The problem is that they were blind. They were deceived. Which is why when God approaches the woman, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She's right, he did. He led you to believe that if you did this, your life would get better. So you did it and your life got worse. Your problem, Eve, is that you were blind. You do not know the intentions of the serpent, and you must not know the intentions of God. So every time you reach out and you try to do something that you think makes your life better and it makes you happier, it puts you in a worse situation than you were in before. Your problem is not that you're a rebel, you're a fool. So their eyes are opened and they realize that they are naked. He never told us that. He told us if we ate it, we would be like God. He never told us we would see that we were naked. I'm wondering if the nakedness that they saw was not their own, but the other person's. Which is why when God approaches Adam and says, where are you? He said, I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? First words out of his mouth. The woman that you uh, put here with me. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if he saw her nakedness and she saw his and in pointing that out, they start sewing coverings for themselves so they can hide themselves from the other and from God. So part of our problem, people, is not just that we are fools. The problem is that in our foolishness, we cannot even face the consequences. When the consequences become evident that what we have done is wrong, it's not producing the kind of happiness that we were supposed to get. The first thing we do is blame somebody. I am not the problem. The problem are my friends. The problem is this world. The problem is the economy. The problem is my parents. The problem is that church. The problem are my kids. You see, as fools, we tell our own narrative and we get trapped inside of an asylum of blame. And the more we retell that narrative, it makes us out to be the victim and everyone else is the problem. And then our hearts become hard 
we finally decide that reality will be what I said it would be. If something is pleasing to me and I like it and nobody gets hurt, it's good. And if I don't like it or it's hard, then it's bad. This is my world. Two people consenting to do anything is good. What if they're both insane? What if they have both lost their minds? What if neither one of them can see reality? So they have stepped inside a cycle of self-talk, which for them is an echo chamber. And they won't listen to anyone else or any other voice. What I'm describing right now is the human condition. It started out with foolishness, ignorance, blindness. From there, it led to a darkened understanding. I'm creating my own reality, and from there to a hardness of heart. And it just becomes this cycle. And I do this again and again and again and again and again until I understand my world and I understand reality. The problem is that because this is not the way the garden works. You can believe anything you want to believe. You can be Christian if you want. But if you do not live according to the ways of the garden, you're fool. You keep doing the same thing. You're going to heaven, I guess, if that was the point. But between now and heaven is a long road and you're going to hate every mile because everything you're doing is backfiring on you. All of your definitions, your entire value system is convoluted. Father Daniel now said, wisdom consists in giving to things the importance they have in reality. But you can't do that. You don't value things that are truly important. You've learned to value other things. And as long as we stay in this condition, things are what they are. Exhale, I need to. How do we break into this? Because um, I see this in my life in my life, and I see this with people that I talk to all the time. There is a kind of insanity that once a person is in this little loop, you cannot break into that. Do you know what I mean? They have their own way. 
The other way to tell the gospel is to say that God, who is not far from any one of us, according to Paul, God is not opposite you, far away. You got to find someone to bridge the gap. God is not far from any one of us, but he can't get into us because we keep retelling the same tired narrative that we call reality, only it's not working and we double down. So God sends someone himself to break into the asylum, not because he is trying to get us out of the asylum, but because he's trying to change everybody in the asylum. Uh, on break, I was uh, in Barnes and Nobles because I'm too cheap to buy the book and was reading a book uh, about uh, an experiment that happened in 1973. A physician talked eight healthy people into joining an asylum and they could not get out of it until they convinced the doctors that they were sane. It changed what we learned about madness. One of the salient thoughts in the book was that inside of the asylum, only the insane know who the sane ones are. Let me translate that. The world is gone mad and everyone is crazy. And if you want to know who the Christians are, don't ask the Christians. They all think they're saved. They all believe in Jesus. But their lives are still insane. If you want to know who the Christians are, ask the insane. And they will tell you, when someone breaks into our little asylum and they start living in a different way, we know that there is another way out there. We still don't know how to do it. This is exactly what God has done. He has come into our world and he has consistently lived out the difference between sanity and insanity, between seeing and blindness. He lives light. And it shines in darkness. Typically when we think like this, because Christians that were nursed on this left side are keep waiting for me to talk about the cross. Well, then where, Steve, is the cross? And the cross, says Paul, is the wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the 
Jews are looking for a sign and the Greeks are looking for wisdom, but it is Christ on the cross that has become for us wisdom from God. The purpose of the cross is not simply to bridge the gap. The purpose of the cross is to model reality. In other words, until the cross, we thought we knew what to do with our enemies. But in the cross, what we learned was the way to overcome your enemies is to die for them. We thought we knew the meaning of justice. And then he shows up and we discover it isn't justice at all that we want. It's vengeance. We were calling it justice. We thought we knew who we were. And so we inflated ourselves. We looked for ways to distinguish ourselves, to brand ourselves, because that's how you get ahead in this asylum, Steve. And then he shows up and he says these stupid things like, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed, but if it dies, it multiplies itself only because you're never around to see it. You don't like it. But it is still the only way to multiply. You see what I mean? He comes into our world and in the cross, he lives out an entirely new reality. And in the words of Paul in Colossians chapter two, all of these things that we believe he makes a spectacle out of those things, nailing them to the cross. I didn't know I was supposed to ask for that. So I was forgiven. What I learned was the problem is not simply my guilt the problem is my folly, my blindness. Yeah. The problem is not just that I am separate from God. The problem is that I am insulated from God. He can't get into the asylum. And therefore, salvation is not just a sacrifice. I need an interpreter. I need someone who is an example who can come into my madness and live sane so I have some kind of model. And if I do this, I'm not just right with God, I'm right. I can live right. I didn't know that I was looking for this, but this explained a lot for me because um, you can be a Christian a long time and not know this. You can be trapped. Just repeating, discipled 
by the culture, by your friends, by the media. You can be discipled by them. And Christians are all the time. Oh, but when God comes into your world with a new way, man, oh man, it's the first sign of hope that you don't have to live like this anymore. You can actually have a flourishing life. So I always worry that these are going to be seminars, and they are. I want, if I can, three minutes for a sermon. One day when they took their friend to Jesus, they'd known him for a while, I take it. They knew he was blind, but they couldn't help him. So they must have known that Jesus had powers that nobody else has. Maybe we try this. So they bring their friend to Jesus and say, um, he's blind. Is there anything you can do for him? And Jesus takes the guy off to the side. Never in public, is it? And he spits <laughs> in the guy's eyes. And um, then he says to him, can you see anything? And the guy says, yeah, I see people like trees. <laughs> Somebody on the staff said, uh, how did they know what trees looked like? You're blind. My friend David Smith says, what if it wasn't congenital blindness? What if he didn't start out blind? What if blindness was the result of other conditions in his life? So Jesus then touches his eyes a second time, and he says, can you see anything now? And the man, wait for the language, saw everything clearly. In other words, he saw things as they were, not as he imagined them to be. He saw reality. And the first time a person who is blind is led to see, the first thing they say is, I never imagined that it looked like this. <sighs> wow, so much brighter and more colorful and deeper and more dimensional than I imagined. I mean, I had an image. This is real. So this morning, I think there are two kinds of people here. I think some of you have friends that you need to bring to Jesus. Because you deal with this all the time when you're talking to them. I do. Until somebody gets inside and flips a switch, mm, no chance of getting through. There is no better way to say it. And you know them. So what I'm asking you to do in a moment is to come forward and just say, I'm going to bring these friends to Jesus. And I'm going to say, can you, can you do something for them? The other person that's here is the blind themselves. And some of you already may have believed in Jesus and you've had your sins forgiven. And that's great. 
but there's still so many things. You still, you still hate your enemies. You're not supposed to, but you do. And you love your stuff. And you break promises. And you stir up dissension, not on purpose, but you know everywhere you go, there's a hurricane. And you don't do it on purpose, but whenever you do it, your life gets harder and more difficult. And you're a Christian, but you can't see. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to find one thing that Jesus said that you find hard to believe and do it anyway for 30 days. Right now you say, it'd be the death of me. If I do that, my life will be terrible. Well, it ain't great now, so why don't you... Why don't you give it a shot? 30 days. If you want to come like that, Jesus, it's not my friend, it's me. I need to see. I don't see it. I'm going to ask you to come and kneel. If you want to bring somebody to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to come and stand. Now, Jesus, wherever your people gather, you are in our midst. And even if we've been blind to that in the last 30 minutes, Make it real, palpable in the next few minutes. In your great name, I pray.